All right, and welcome. This is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I'm Pastor Mike, and you're bringing the questions today. Our first one, uh, by the way, we do this every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, and uh, although not normally, my cat is super, uh, she's on my lap right now. She might be making noise because she's, sometimes she goes through these phases where she's uh, a little bit extra affectionate. (laughs) Okay, so the first question is from uh, Gabriella. Uh, Paolini, who says, hello, I'm a Christian, and it's been important to me to understand why the Lord Jesus didn't mention to the apostles or anyone that Paul would be coming to enlighten the way for his church. This question hasn't been addressed in any of the studies I've researched, nor by any of the pastors I listen to, but isn't this question a most serious matter since Paul wrote the majority of our New Testament? Um, So, little factoid for you, Gabriella. Um, Luke wrote more than Paul. As far as quantity goes, Paul wrote more letters, more individual letters, but Luke actually wrote more quantity-wise. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. Oh, I almost forgot our little question counter in, oh, in the back over my shoulder there. So this is question number one. Now let's um, <clears throat> let's walk through this. First, let me mention this. Um, this is a bit of guesswork, okay? So there isn't a clear answer from Scripture to your question. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull biblical principles out uh, and biblical teachings out and use that as kind of like a, a, a grid, a skeleton, so to speak, upon which we can sort of try to fill out a potential answer. Um, <laughs> sorry. She's, every once in a while, my cat goes through these like stages where she's just like really affectionate for like 10 minutes or so. She's like super like, pet me. I need to be in your lap right now. And... Uh, uh, right now is one of those moments. Usually it doesn't happen during a stream. <clears throat> so um, if I don't, if I push her down, she'll uh, she'll just scream. <laughs> so, um, okay, so first thing I want to do is say this. Um, it's possible that Jesus did say something about Paul. We don't know that he didn't. Like, think about this for a second. Jesus said lots of things that, that were not recorded. This is what John says at the end of his gospel. There's all kinds of stuff Jesus said that was simply not recorded. Is it possible he said something about Paul the Apostle? Yes. Is it possible he said something that prepared the other apostles for Paul? Yes. Um, Now, he doesn't need to say that to us, right? Because we have affirmations in the New Testament that Paul is definitely an apostle, that Peter not only not only gave him the right hand of fellowship, we read about in Galatians 2, but that Peter even, this is, this blows me away. Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. If that's not (laughs) the, the highest kind of endorsement you can possibly have, I don't know what is, you know, Peter refers to uh, people who read Paul's writings and some of them twist it because there's there's things that are sometimes hard to understand in Paul's writings. Hello, that's true, of course. And some people do twist it. That's true as well. This is a perennial truth. But then he adds on this phrase, as they do also the rest of Scripture. In other words, Paul's writing is part of this category called Scripture. So that, that's a pretty big deal um, in the book of Acts. They they recognize that he is, he is God's a anointed person to go particularly to the Gentiles, to have a Gentile-focused ministry. So definitely the Holy Spirit revealed, at least progressively, to the apostles that that Paul was to be one of the apostles, and, and particularly called to the Gentiles. This is something the Holy Spirit revealed. Acts talks about it. I think Acts 13 talks about it, and also Acts 15 and other various places. Um, Galatians 2 and in, uh, is it First Peter, I believe, where Peter mentions this. So they did accept Paul, but also here's, now let me, let me say this. Uh, let's suppose Jesus didn't. Hypothetically, Jesus never mentioned something about Paul. Um, this is possibly because they weren't ready for it. One of the things that, <clears throat> and, and this is taken from the bones of scripture here, because 
Jesus tells the disciples, there's many things I'd like to tell you about, but you're not ready for them yet. And so he tells them, the Holy Spirit is going to come and will guide them in all truth. So there will be, Jesus does say there's going to be stuff that he hasn't told them about yet that they will be told later through the Holy Spirit. So that is the thing that Jesus prepared them for, was for more information to come later. And in Acts, there's a theme, and this connects to Paul in a very special way. There's a theme in the book of Acts that is the issue of Jewish and Gentile um, division and finally inclusion and connection in Christ. And so the question in the book of Acts that gets answered slowly over several, several chapters, I mean like 15 chapters worth, is are the Gentiles really partakers of Jesus Christ, partakers of Messiah without becoming Jews? And the answer to this question is yes, they are. But you have like things like Acts chapter 10 where Peter is, is com- compelled by a vision, a revelation, not something he learned directly from Jesus, although it's consistent with that, but a revelation he got where he has this whole vision about the different foods and unclean and clean and all that. And then he goes to Cornelius, a Gentile, and he preaches the gospel. He watches the Holy Spirit come upon them and they speak in tongues. And Peter's like, I guess they can be saved just like us. <laughs> and this is a revelation to Peter. Why? How does that connect to Paul? Because Paul is the apostle who carries that the weight of that message forward for the Gentile church. What I'm suggesting is just like the um, revelation about the Gentiles was the, the seeds were laid by Jesus, but it was progressively understood more in the book of Acts through the work of the spirit, just like Jesus said. So Paul is part of that work. It's understandable that he was not fully understood early on or even made aware of people weren't made aware of him early on. So I think that that is uh, the bones of the answer that I would give right there. Um, I don't think it should concern us in the sense that some people do try to suggest Paul was not really a legitimate apostle. And this is a very dangerous, dangerous and heretical thing to say. Um, I don't say that because I'm like, you know, angry or something. You guys, you guys know me. I mean, red flags should be going off, (laughs) you know, firing alarms should be happening in your head when you hear somebody suggest that Paul was not legitimate. What they're doing is they're wanting to remove large portions of the scripture so that they can replace it with their own unbiblical teachings. This is the case every time. So we know Paul is an apostle. We have this in various books of the Bible. And if Peter's an apostle, then Paul is because he affirms Paul's uh, apostolic calling. So I don't think these these things should concern us, Gabrielle. And I hope that my answers have helped you in some way. Let's go to question number two. This is an anonymous question and it says, is God male? Thank you for your ministry. And my answer would be, um, as, as I understand male to refer to like a physical quality, right? The answer would be no and yes. And why are we asking this question? <laughs> so let me explain those three things. No, because God is spirit. He is not human. He is not human. And nor is God, then when you refer to God in a masculine sense, which he's very consistently referred to in a masculine term, with masculine terms throughout scripture. So, but when you refer to God in a ma- masculine terms, it's not to suggest he's male. It's, it's I think, meant to suggest his, his authority, his headship, and his, um, yeah, he's in charge, is, is, is part of the connection that's going on there. And... The reason why I would say he's not male is because this implies more than just masculine terminology to describe God. It implies like males have certain parts and things like that. Now, that, that's why I say no. But <clears throat> then I say yes, because Christ took on human form and he took on the form of a man. And Jesus is God 
he's God and he's man and his in his humanity he's male he's he's male right so the father is referred to in male terminology the spirit is referred to with male terminology in scripture and Jesus is comes as as an actual male there there are your answers yes he is God male well Jesus is male but that was not because of his innate nature this is because he took on a nature he took on a new nature a human nature that nature is male um, so when we get to the, um, oh, and then I say, why are we asking this is because our culture is super weird about male, female stuff. Um, and I'm going to give you my, my opinion about how this relates <laughs> in the scripture. It's not controversial to be male or female, and it's not controversial to think that those, those things have implications. Now, some they're, they, they're reacting to, uh, oppression right in the past and they're thinking that the very existence of different roles is oppressive if you're going to have that view you're going to have a lot of awkward moments when you encounter things like god being consistently referred to with masculine terminology you can find um him sometimes referring to himself with a with a feminine analogy so god would say like he's like a mother hen gathers her chicks jesus refers to jerusalem only gather you like a mother hen gather gathers her chicks gather your children and so there's there's that that's a feminine terminology um but that's not to say that this is supposed to weigh in on whether god is referred to masculine or feminine or something like that it's just not this is not a controversial issue in scripture we make it controversial in our current pop culture if we're going to try to understand um and and not sort of hijack scripture for our own purposes, then we're going to see that there's a male terminology there because there is an authority being represented in God. If that bothers you, I think you're the one with the issues. <laughs> and so something you should be slow down and try not to be so stuck in your own culture that you can't understand the biblical worldview. All right. Number three, this is Brandon Figueroa who says, uh, how can someone be banished? And yet, not cast out from God. I'm referring to what the woman of Tekoa said in 2 Samuel 14, 14. Is it only within that context or can it be applied transcend transcendentally? Okay, I'm <clears throat> I'm totally confused by the question, but that's because, um, probably because I don't know what you're referring to here, like how it connects. Let's, let's go to the passage. This is, um, I went to first, 2 Samuel. 1414. I'm going to back up a bit and get some context. Context is good. All right, we're going to back up a ways here. Um, okay, I'll, I'll just start from verse one. Now, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak, speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, which was a lie. And your servant had two sons and they quarreled with one another and in the field. There was no one to separate them and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan is risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. 
and so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king. And on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. Now she's like, hey, here's the reveal. I was lying to you. But she's going to try to uh, then use the words of Joab here in her mouth to try to help. Uh, Absalom. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Boom. That was probably the pivotal moment there. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. And he said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life when he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Um, okay, so... This is this is all bartering for Absalom and that 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 sort of internal turmoil, the royal family drama that is David's you know lineage. Um, we get we get something from the context there, but what? Let me read verse fourteen again, and then I'm going to read the question again, and let's see if we can all get on the same page as um, Brandon here. So we must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. This seems to be um, God's preference, not because God takes life, but it seems to be, in my mind, a preference that God has to restore as a, instead of judge. This is Old and New Testament. God would rather heal you than curse you. He would rather bring you in than cast you out. So he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Okay, so this is about like bringing Absalom back from being banished. Now let's read the question again from Brandon, and I'll, we'll see if this relates to the context or not. How can someone be banished and, and yet not cast out from God? I'm referring to what the woman of Tekoa said in 2 Samuel 14, 14. Is it only within that context, or can it be applied transcendentally? Okay, so um, the... Actually, he said transcendently, not transcendentally. Just so you all know. <laughs> um, so the um, uh, the question is, is there like an allegorical application of these verses? Um, hey, you know, here's a guy who's cast out, but but hey, let's bring him back. And, and this is literally he's been he's been sort of banished or cast out like he, you're rejected from the kingdom. Can we the kingdom of Israel? Can we relate this to salvation? Can there be someone who's cast out like like out of God's kingdom? Right. But they're not actually cast out from God. I, I, I'm, I'm just going to say, Brandon, I think that we're, we're trying to relate it. We're, we're trying to draw an allegory too strongly. That's probably not here. Um, I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't go down this road in my Bible study. I just wouldn't go down that road at all. Cause what we're trying to do is operate with a category in our head that there's somebody who's outside of, um, I'm trying to read your terminology here again. They're banished, but not cast out from God. Banished would only be banished from God's kingdom in your analogy, in the allegorical interpretation of this, being banished from God's kingdom as opposed to the nation of Israel, which is not, you don't have to be part of Israel to be like nationally to be considered part of 
God's ultimate kingdom in that sense. That's a, that's a hairy subject. <laughs> what I would suggest is that we're, we're just pushing too much of an allegorical thing here. Um, we can get from this passage, this idea that God has a preference, right? That even those who are currently out because of their sins might be restored. There's a preference there, but that's as far as I would draw that analogy or that, that allegorical reading. Actually, it's not even, my reading's not even allegorical. I don't think, I think I'm just saying, look, this is speaking of God's preference that people be brought back in. That's as far as I would go with it. And I'll move on to the next question. So um, sometimes this is what Bible study is, you guys. You you read a passage and, and if I'm right, Brandon, maybe you've got more to say on that and that's fine. Maybe maybe I'm missing something. But if I'm right, um, what happens a lot of times in Bible studies, you, you open a passage, you get an idea you really like. And you're like, oh, that's really beautiful. That's really cool. I like that. But the connection to the passage is a little bit weak. And you have to really ask yourself, how much am I willing to lock in my belief in my interpretation because I like it when the connection seems kind of weak? Now, I'm not saying that's what Brandon is doing because I have no idea what's going on in Brandon's mind. But I'm telling you what my experience is as a Bible teacher over and over and over again. Part of being a good Bible teacher is learning to cut off interpretations you like that are simply not well established in the passage and refusing to use verses out of context for those things. That is a lesson that many never learn because it, quote, preaches well. All right, number four, anonymous question says, I've been struggling with OCD vows recently. OCD vows, such as if I don't say this in prayer, I'm not saved. Many places online say, let it go. You can't make a vow out of fear. How can I look at this biblically? Oh man, I, I wish I understood better. I wish I could sit with you and ask you, you know, more questions about what you're, what you're mean, what you mean here. Um, by vows. If I don't say this in prayer, I'm not saved. Okay. Let me just talk about that for a moment. The idea that there's certain formulas you m must, not can say in prayer, but that you must say in prayer out loud in order to be saved is, I think, not biblically supported. Let me talk about my own experience with salvation. Um, when I first went, I was, I was probably about 12 when I first got invited to church. Um, not that my family had never gone, but I don't really remember attending <laughs> with my family. So when I did go, a friend invited me, and um, I won't get into the details of my family life because... Um, I care about my family. I don't want to say things that might embarrass people many years later. So I was very happy to get out of the house. Any, any reason to get out of the house, I was pretty happy with. And so I went to just get out of the house. I went to the church and to a youth group, Thursday night youth group over at a uh, Cypress Park Community Church in Cyprus, which doesn't, the church doesn't exist anymore. Somebody else is in that building now. But I went there with, with a friend and there I heard the gospel. I had conviction of my sin and I remember an incredible sense of relief when I realized that Jesus had, because I because I was thinking I had to be good enough for heaven. I was going to like earn my way. And then I had this incredible sense of relief when I realized that Jesus had, had like paid for my sin, that his death meant that I could be forgiven. And that's what I remember. I never was led in prayer to my knowledge. Years down the road, now my life changed. My life changed and I experienced 
like closeness with God, like relationship with God, like God with me. And I'd felt so alone before. And now I felt that God was actually with me and it was beautiful and life changing thing, you know? So then I started going to church all alone without my family <laughs> and for years, just Thursday nights to youth ministry. Um, anyway, there's a lot more to that story, but years and years later, I remember thinking, um, like maybe as like a 17, 18 year old thinking that was I really saved because someone hadn't led me through the prayer, right? The prayer, which is more of a, of a cultural thing. It's not bad. Okay. I don't, I'm not against the idea of a sinner's prayer, but setting it up as the standard by which you get saved, this is the way. And so someone came and spoke at our church and he was like, Hey, you know, maybe you've never, maybe you've never, um, prayed the sinner's prayer and you're, you're like uncertain about this. I'm just going to lead you through it. Like you're, you're not doubting what God has done for you. You just want to have that sense of peace. And I remember him leading us in a prayer. This was me as an immature Christian. And he's like, Hey, let me just walk you through this. He led us in a prayer. And then I felt better because I had like checked the box. Now, even years later, as a more mature Christian, I realized two things. One, I was saved before that. I was saved when I believed, when I trusted in Christ, even though I had not said it out loud. And I know Roman says, like, um, you know, the confession happens with the mouth and all that. But this is obviously not meant to be like a policy you drop on everybody, like as if a, de a, a mute who can't use words is unable to be saved. Um, that That's just that there's a genuine confession is the idea. And... Um, and the second thing I realized was this. Scripture does not generally have people being led through a sinner's prayer. There just is a response of the heart to the gospel message, a turning to God. And then the only public display, and this is key, the only public display is baptism. Baptism where you where you go and you publicly proclaim. This is, this is the way in which you proclaim your faith and trust in Christ in public. So if you're looking for something to do, right, as a way of just declaring your salvation, declaring your trust in Christ, get baptized if you haven't done that yet. But your salvation itself happens when your heart turns to Christ and trusts in him. Um, don't look for prayers that you can sort of lock in your, your salvation with when those things are not supplied biblically. Because, and maybe this is the reason why, because a sinner's prayer, while it can be a beautiful, genuine thing, it can also be a totally fake thing where someone's like, well, I prayed the prayer, so I'm saved. And then they go and live any way they want. And they haven't really had a heart that's turned to Christ. They just wanted something they could check a box to feel like they're saved. And I don't think scripture gives us that. Although I'm not opposed to leading people in the sinner's prayer. I'm just opposed to thinking of it as, as that box checking device. Number five, this is uh, Jonathan Beckham who says, is the soul as an eternity, as an eternal entity, more of a Greek philosophical idea or confirmed in scripture? Do you have any biblical references for an eternal soul? Thank you for your ministry. John, Jonathan Beckham, this is um, a tough subject, like legitimately tough subject. Um, I'm, let me tell you my, I'm, a, I'm of the persuasion. I'm, I believe that the eternality of the soul is true. Um, but I've heard the pushback from those who hold to like the conditional immortality position and they're not all heretical Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> um, uh, some of them have arguments that I have not yet considered. And so while I am not persuaded by them and what I have heard from them has not convinced me, I'm just aware that there's this sort of like empty spot in my research, right? Where I haven't looked into that. So I tentatively hold to the idea of like, yes, like I, now here's my starting point, right? Is I'm going to trust scripture on this. Um, there are a few things that we could, um, 
that we could look at, you know, like it, when I look at the, the scriptures, it seems to indicate if, if nothing else, at least that, at least that the soul outlives the body. So when the body dies, the soul doesn't die. So physicalism, I'm very much thinking that's seems to be clearly not biblical. Look at, um, Samuel being brought up after his death, being brought up in some spirit form, uh, to, uh, rebuke Saul. We read about that. Um, we, we look at, um, uh, a number of other cases where there's something like that going on. Jesus's whole story about Lazarus and the rich man, even if you think that's a parable, you still have these, um, like, you know, people who are existing beyond their death. So in other words, it's not just when they're resurrected that their souls come back and the soul dies with the body and ceases to exist. I don't think that that's the case. Um, I think there's a lot of problems with that view. So I would push back on that. I've given you a couple examples. I should definitely could give you more. Um, in Revelation, there are the souls under the altar that are crying out. They're desiring to have their bodies. be. So in other words, what I'm suggesting is the soul lives beyond the body. The other um, more challenging question is eternal. Is it eternal? So I mean, I'm inclined to think yes. And my, my understanding of scripture would say yes, but I haven't fully vetted that, fully vetted that issue. So I'm at least open to hearing other views. So Jonathan, that's my brief thoughts on that. Um, that deserves a very thorough study and a much longer teaching on my part someday in the future. Number six, Kevin Smith. Do you think any of the people that died in the flood above the age of accountability may have been saved or will not go to hell? Okay, Kevin, this is... Man, this is this is hard for me. Um, okay, younger version of me would quickly answer this question. No, they, they all they all go to hell. Like, okay, uh, you you know probably Kevin that I believe there is such a thing as a uh, we can call it an age of accountability, but I'm going to refer to it like as a um, degree of accountability. And there's a there's a point at which someone has no accountability um, on account of they have no ability. <laughs> you like that? Um, but there's there's instead a um, Another question you're asking, which is, okay, but what about those who were old enough to know better and they died in the flood? Okay, generally speaking, we can say the answer is no. Like the scripture is clear on this. Like the, the thoughts of men's hearts are wicked all the time. Like let's let's go to Genesis 6 and let's look at the description of the people of the time. Obviously, this is not talking about a one-year-old. Obviously. Um, but... Uh, the Lord, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this is this is the motive for bringing the flood. The, the wickedness of man is is at such a degree and it's so widespread. Okay, so then my, my like I said, my younger answer, younger version of me would have just said, no, they were none of them were safe. They were all, they all fit this description of wickedness. But when I think about it a little bit more detailed, I'm like, is the scripture trying to tell me that every single individual, every single person was fitting that description or that it was such a massive number? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. So I, I don't know how to answer your question, Kevin. Is it, is it possible that there's one guy named Jeffus who <laughs> lived wherever, right? Jeffus from the lesser known Ur <laughs> and, and, and Jephus, he, he, you know, he got caught up in the flood like everybody else, but he had at some point he had, he had really trusted in God and he was really trying to live the, live, live a godly life. And he was reje rejecting the idolatry of his people. Is it possible? Um, well, 
I mean, I think it's at least possible. And then God would have brought him right into, um, into, you know, comforts and, and not, not punishment or anything like that. But on the pushback to this, let's work through it. The pushback to this would be, but wait, Mike, like when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, he's like, I'm not going to, he, he's going to make Lot come out first. Right. And, and the ark fits this too. Noah, it seems as though Noah is the only one because he's the only one who makes it to the ark to get saved. So there's a, there's a good point to make there. It may well be that the, the ark itself, having Noah, just Noah and his family is commentary that there was nobody else righteous. There was nobody else who um, was, was not fitting that description, not even an individual. He, God brought two by two all these animals to the ark. Wouldn't he have brought Jephus, you know, <laughs> over to the ark too? And that, that seems like a pretty good argument. So I would lean towards the answer being no. Um, none of them were saved beyond the age of accountability. But I would also just recognize that um, trying to extrapolate general statements about, you know, the world to every single individual is just a difficult task. Number seven, Kevin Lionel says, you said people who've never heard of Jesus need to respond to natural revelation to be saved. Can you give an example of how a woman growing up in Saudi Arabia would respond to natural revelation? Um, so I've heard stories about this sort of thing before. So I'll give you um, an example. Excuse me. So, um, a woman growing up in Saudi Arabia, let me tell you guys a story, a true story. This is about a guy that called up my, my church, um, while I was still on staff, uh, on the church and not, not doing this full time. And he wanted to talk about Jesus. Um, and he lived in, um, let me just say, I don't want to give too many details about him because you'll, you'll understand in a minute. Um, he lived in another country that was across the Atlantic and, the, um, the situation is this, he wanted to call and talk to someone about Jesus. And you're like, why did he call an obscure? Well, you know, a, a, a not that big of a church in Bellflower, California. And the reason is because he lived in a very Muslim community within this country and he had been raised and everybody's pretty dogmatically Islamic in his community and in his family. And he started getting interested in Jesus. So you say Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is going to be a Muslim country that has access to the Quran, that has information about Jesus, although not a lot, they have some, and it's not, it's not actually accurate, but he just started getting fascinated with Jesus. It was just like the work of the Holy Spirit in the man's life. And he starts asking his family and friends, he goes, I'd like to know more about Jesus. I'd like to think more about Jesus. And they started feeling threatened by this. Um, he kept pressing though. He felt a spiritual need to understand more about Jesus. Well, after his family started realizing that what was happening is he was slowly doubting Islam about Jesus and putting his trust in Christ. Um, even though he wasn't really being exposed to Christian literature at all, his family beat him up, radically beat him up until the point where he is now, he is now um, crippled and he's not capable of getting around and getting around all by himself. So he calls across the Atlantic to some obscure church, very, very far away from where he lives because he's scared. Because he happened to see that I had some videos online when I had just started my YouTube channel and probably had like three subscribers or something, um, or more than that, but not very many. And he calls and we talk on the phone and we talked regularly for a series for a season of time. And I sent him resources and he eventually became very bold, very bold. And his family threatened to kill him, but he just said, you know what? 
Jesus saved me. I, I, it's worth dying for him. He saved my life. And, um, and anyway, it's a long story to know all about this gentleman, but there's an example of somebody who just in an isolated community, very hostile to the gospel of Christ, where the spirit just starts working in the man's life. He's got no access, uh, that he's, you know, to these things. He had to call somebody across the country, across the, the world to just talk more about who Jesus was. He just became fascinated with Christ. It was just the work of the spirit. And we see this in guys like Abraham. Abraham is in a, an ungodly, uh, idolatrous nation, certainly less information about God than is in the Islamic communities. And it, God calls him and he, and he turns from the idolatry of his family, of the past and all that. And he's worshiping the true God. We, we see God is at work in people's lives. We even see in the flood that the spirit was striving with man. And God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever because God is actively working. So, I mean, Christian missionaries and Bibles and tracts and things like that, they go out and they do carry the message of the truth of salvation. But to think that this is the only way that God communicates to people, it is the authoritative way, it is the most reliable way, but to think it's the only way would be to not pay attention to the things we read in these very pages. And so, um, so yeah, I, I mean, in a sense, I could answer your question a little bit by saying, hey, Kevin, God is at work in people's lives and the Bible affirms this with saying that creation declares the glory of God and that, that conscience tells us that we've sinned so that we all stand in a knowledgeable place of guilt before him. That gives us something to react to and that if we seek the Lord, we'll find him. So if the person's responding to that, then I'm trusting that God's going to reach out to them as well. It may not be simplistic uh, in the way it actually plays out, but it seems to me that it'll happen. There's a few thoughts on that, Kevin. I obviously am just a man, right? You're just asking my opinions on these things. Um, I trust that, that God, he loves people and he wants them saved. And if they will have him, I think that it seems likely he's going to be sending them something to help. Number eight, Janita Morris says, Pastor Mike, please explain what is meant by the mysteries of God in Ephesians 3, 5. Oh, the mysteries of good. Okay, this is an interesting, um, don't ask me why, I just did a really bad accent. Um this, this is a really great question. It's a very commonly misunderstood concept. And so I'm backing up a little bit because we like to get context a little bit. So let's, let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read the first several verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which is was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, so what is the mystery? Well, let me, we have some clues so far that the mystery relates to Paul's stewardship from God of God's grace, which is to say, God Paul's saying, God, by his grace, has called me and he's given me a job to do. And my job is to be faithful with this mystery, this, this, the knowledge of this mystery. Well, what's the mystery? Well, it, it was made known to him by revelation. Well, we, we, we read about that when uh, Paul talks about how the gospel was communicated to him directly by Jesus Christ. That's how he got his knowledge about the gospel itself. Also, he says, when you read, you can perceive his insight into the mystery of Christ, Ah, so it's all about the, the identity, person, and work of Jesus. That's the mystery. And you start to realize the mystery is not a mystery anymore. This is connected even to the words that Paul's using. This Greek word is talking about something that 
was a mystery but has been revealed. So there's no secrets. It's not something that you read this and you're like, I wonder what that was. No, no, you know what that was. Read the book of Romans. That's where he explains this mystery. Um, he also does it in Ephesians. But in verse 5, he specifically explains what he means. Uh, the mystery, which was not made known, or excuse me, verse 6, uh, to the sons of men and other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is those messengers in the first century carrying the, the message of the gospel out. That's the mystery. Verse 6, this mystery is, this mystery is, now you find out, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's focus on the mysteries is twofold. One is you are saved by grace through faith, right? This is Ephesians chapter two. He just explained it. Notice how he says, as I briefly written you already, Ephesians two, he's talking about how we're saved by grace through faith apart from works. Um, but that's, that's one part. The second part is, and, and this connects, I mean, they connect to each other because of this fact the Gentiles and Jews can be joined together into one body where there is no longer a separation between them. That was a big deal in the first century, the Jewish Gentile issues. Um, we all are part of Christ. We all in Christ are brothers and sisters and partakers of Christ and part of the same family of God. And that's the mystery. So here's where people get weird, right? They read the word mystery and then they start to make up, like they act like, oh, there's, there's things that are true about Christianity that aren't in the Bible. They're these mysteries. And then they come up with their own weird teachings. And then they try to say, that was the mystery Paul was talking about. Uh, but obviously, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul uses the term mystery because the fullness of the gospel was not understood in the Old Testament times, even though it was discussed, even though all the groundwork was laid. It's later you know, when, when Jesus shows up that he kind of provides the decoder ring for understanding all that stuff in the old Testament and for understanding the fullness of the gospel. Hey, you can, you can have your sins forgiven. You can be joined to God's people. The law has a special function in driving you to Christ, but Christ is the one who brings us all together. Not the law, not becoming Jewish in that sense. Edward Schaefer has a question says, did the new covenant start when the temple which housed the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed. So, Edward, this is a, d a debate. I don't know if I know the right answer, but I'll talk about it a bit for you guys. The debate is, when did the New Covenant begin? Um, Jesus clearly brings in a New Covenant. The Old Covenant is, is, is that of the law, and the nature, that this whole um, language of Old and New Covenants, for those listening, is, um, is, if I could summarize it kind of simplistically, the old covenant, like the law of Moses, that has to do with if you obey me, if you do everything the way I tell you to, you'll, you'll be my people and I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And that's meant to teach us that we're not good enough. It's not just to say, hey, you have to be super good to, get, to be saved. It's rather you're just not good enough. The continued failings of Israel, it's a message about all of mankind that we fail. We stand before God falling short of his glory. Like... This is so, this hits home so hard when I just think I'm aware of right and wrong and my awareness of right and wrong never matches my life. I never live up to my own standards of what's right and wrong. And if I had to stand before God and I was judged based on my works, I would be doomed. Honest, 
honest self-reflection brings us to that point. And the law, the old covenant was meant to teach you that, but it was also meant to draw all these pictures and prophecies and stuff to show you that it was leading you to Christ, that it was showing you're condemned, but demonstrating there's a way out and that's through Jesus, through the sacrifice of Christ. So Jesus brings the new covenant. The new covenant is, hey, I'm going to wash your sins away. And rather than giving you rules you have to obey, I'm going to give you a new heart that longs to serve me a heart that desires to follow me. I'm going to make you a new person from the inside out. And this, again, takes place in sanctification in the Christian life as you progressively, you know, God willing, you yielding, you become more and more Christ-like and more and more godly through the work of the Holy Spirit in you, not through the rules that you're learning. So when did it start, though? When did the new covenant begin? Well, that's a tough question to answer. Um, You could say, well, it starts when Jesus dies on the cross, right? Okay, some people would say it happens at the moment of Christ's death on the cross. And then there's some debate over, well, was the, was the thief on the cross saved under the old covenant or under the new covenant? Because he, he believed in Jesus before his death, but, but he died after Jesus' death. And then some would say the new covenant begins at the resurrection of Christ. And others would say the new covenant begins in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Others would say the new covenant begins at communion when the, when the bread and the wine come out and Jesus gives them, he says, this is the covenant in my blood. And now, now that's the new covenant, which means the covenant began before the death of the one instituting the covenant. Um, I don't know the right answer to these questions, but let me, let me throw this out there. The thing that I think is a little sketchy is thinking that people who died before the new covenant weren't saved under the new covenant. That's the part I want to push back on. Um, so Romans 4 comes up a lot for some reason in Q&As, and it's where Paul talks about how Abraham was saved and that Abraham himself was saved right, through faith, that it was the same faith that Abraham has that you have that you'll be saved by. It, nobody was ever saved under the old covenant. The old covenant was the schoolmaster leading us to Christ. And then we have Jesus, and we are brought into uh, the knowledge of the new covenant, but I, so I think the knowledge of the new covenant and being and what covenant you're saved under is, is a separate discussion. I think that anybody who's ever been saved was saved under the new covenant. It just wasn't um, fully understood and fully in place. And then, as far as I can tell in Scripture, I don't know of a clear point that tells us this is when the covenant begins. If you look at um, the the Gospels and then the Book of Acts, it seems as though there is like. And then the book of Hebrews, which we'll get into in a, few, in a couple, three months, we'll be getting into the book of Hebrews verse by verse. I'm going to do the whole thing. You, you see that there seems to be have been, not have been like this immediate, constant, like there's the shift. Old covenant here, new covenant here, but rather a revelation of the new covenant uh, in some in institution of a new covenant, right? But a fading of the old covenant, that the old covenant didn't just stop. It was... It was more like there was a slow fading process that happens throughout the book of Acts. And the Hebrews talks about this too. So that the Jews who obeyed the law and were under the law, they still lived according to the law in the book of Acts. Even guys like Peter, for the most part, they did. And then Paul, who lives according to the law when he's like with the Jews, because he wants to use that as evangelism to them. And when he's with the Gentiles, he's not living according to the law. Isn't that interesting? So in other words, he doesn't have to because he realizes the law's place in pointing to Christ. So um, wherever the exact, you know, switch is flipped on the new covenant, whether you, you put it at the death of Christ, the, the, the communion, the resurrection of Christ, the giving of the spirit, it's all pretty close to the same spot. 
Um, but that doesn't mean anybody was saved outside the new covenant. All of us are saved through the new covenant, even if we weren't yet aware of it, weren't yet fully um, cognizant. And then the old covenant seems to fade slowly in the book of Acts and in the book of Hebrews. And then with the destruction of the temple, that was sped up quite a bit as well. Um, if a Jew today was like, Mike, I'm a, I'm a Jew and I follow Jesus. I, I follow the, my, my, my Yeshua, you know, my Messiah. Um, but I also observe all of the, you know, as many of the commands as I can. Um, I wouldn't have a problem with that as long as they knew it wasn't salvific. So, I, yeah, it's complicated. All right, number 10. Fox.dude says, you've said miracles in other religions are false signs from Satan. Why would other religions have reason to think these signs are from Satan? Couldn't a Muslim say the same thing to a Christian? Yeah. Um, okay, so Fox.dude um, let me think through this a little bit here with you. Um, so miracles in other religions are false signs from Satan. I, I mean, that doesn't sound like the way I would word things, but, but I would generally agree with at least the principle that if, if supernatural activity takes place in a false religion, there's a, there's a good chance you should conclude that that is not from God, but from some other supernatural source which could be Satan, his kingdom, that sort of thing. That makes sense. But notice my preface, how I get there. If it takes place in a false religion, then I conclude it's not from God, it's from Satan. That's the reason. So I'm not saying your, your supernatural signs are from Satan, therefore your religion is false. No, I'm saying your religion's false, therefore the supernatural signs that you claim are coming alongside of it are either not real or they're satanic signs because i do think satan has some degree of power there though it doesn't match god um so then in response to that you say why would other religions have reason to think these signs are from satan um that's a good question let me come back to that one couldn't a muslim say the same thing to a christian a muslim could say the same thing they could say mike your religion's false therefore your supernatural signs are from satan but here's where it gets complicated um first off they would have to first establish the falseness of the religion to then conclude that the signs are false. Okay, right? So we're, we're skipping the important part of whether relig the religion's true or not. I'm not I'm not like, you have miracles, therefore you're false. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but also, we have problems that, that come down to simply saying, like, yeah, okay, let's, take, let's pretend you're in the scenario where a Muslim says to a Christian, the supernatural signs in Christianity are false, therefore Christianity, uh, therefore it's, it's satanic. Um, the problem here is that that Islam tries to borrow Christianity to establish its grounding, its 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 groundwork, the foundations for for Islam, because they believe that Jesus really is a prophet. And so, when somebody in the in in the name of Jesus is following Jesus, is proclaiming Jesus, when they're proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, the apostles, Islam's in a confusing moment because they, in some places, Islam says in the Quran, right, that that the 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 Bible is from God, the New Testament as well. It says that Jesus is a prophet, but then it denies that Jesus is God's son. And then it also um, demonizes anyone who says that Jesus has risen, was even crucified. <laughs> Two key things in the Bible, in the New Testament. So you see that Islam has an internal contradiction that's going on. It's like we want to build on a foundation that we're going to we're going to shoot out from under ourselves. Um, so that's a little confusing and hard to deal with the Islam example. Um, basically, though, what I would do if I was encountering someone who's like, look, Mike, uh, in a more charitable way, it said, hey, I've, I've seen supernatural things happen in this religious group that I've been part of. 
I would want to then build a case for why I think those supernatural things were from Satan. I, I'm, I'm going to try to go back to the root of, but your religion is false for these reasons because Christianity is true for these reasons. And therefore, you can conclude that these signs are false signs. Do you see the, the difference? We're, we're, we're just skipping the whole stage of demonstrating what's true as a way of deciding whether that sign is legit or not. Um, anyway, your, your other question that you had embedded in here was, uh, why would other religions have reason to think these signs are from Satan? I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, so I do think that there is like this consciousness awareness type thing that goes on with people that it would be hard to put your finger on. But that would be a hope of mine, is that they would see things happening and be like, and some people have come out and they're like, man, I knew it was wrong all the time. Others, they've come out and they've been like, I was totally deceived. I was totally deceived. So we pray for them. God, open their eyes. Show them that these things are not from you. Show them the truth of Christ. Um, it's a spiritual, supernatural thing that's going on there. So Fox.Dude, the important thing I want you to know is this. I do not conclude, start with this presumption, those signs are from Satan, to get to the conclusion, therefore your religion is false. That's not my, my logic process there. Number 11, Guzalia uh, Ikramova says, is it okay to not attend church at all? I live in Russia and Christianity here is very unbiblical. I've tried a lot of churches and I don't feel comfortable there. Your ministry ha has been a blessing. So Guzalia, the, the, um, the dilemma you have, and this is why I, I'm a little hesitant on answer, how I answer some of these questions, because I realize that what we unintentionally do is we assume people have our scenario and we're answer and, and, and I've seen pastors do this and uh, like pastors who might be watching me like why don't you answer the way I want you to Mike like I want you to think for a minute about the fact that you know here's Gazalia who lives in Russia and it's a very specific scenario and so you could just be like well you need to be in fellowship Gazalia go to church what's wrong with you you know don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together well okay is that the right application for that verse I, I think from your description Gazalia my application is a little different. You're saying these churches are very unbiblical. Like not just they have a little bit wrong, but the churches around me really, really, really problematic. Can't really fellowship there. So Gazalia, my counsel to you would be if our instruction is don't forsake the gathering of ourselves together, Gazalia, labor to find other like-minded believers wherever you can. Continue to seek to find them and start your own gathering. doesn't mean you're trying to lead the church. It just means you're trying to gather together with believers. And then pray that God would help you guys start. If it's an underground church, fine. Help you guys start your own thing. Because the church, there's going to be other believers around you that desperately need fellowship and encouragement and teaching and to be a community of believers in a biblical good environment. So, Gazalia, my counsel to you is, not that you just go to a really bad church, but that you pray that God would help you be part of bringing together and um, making a good church, a good gathering of believers. That would be my, my advice to you. God guide you and bless you in it and turn you and other believers around you into magnets for each other so you can, uh, you can find one another. Number 12, Cindy Liz says, new believer. Watched a Christian cartoon with my son, and it depicted God as a Santa-looking man. And he asked if we were breaking the second commandment. Is it a sin to depict God in any way? Ooh, interesting question, Cindy. Uh, by the way, guys, no more questions. We have all 20 in. So thank you so much for throwing them in there. We'll answer all the ones we've already got loaded. Um, can only do so much. But we do it what we can. Um, so God looks like a Santa-looking man. Um 
is it breaking? Okay, is it a good idea? Probably not. Okay, characterizing God as a man, generally a bad idea, I think, right? The, the, uh, Mormonism does this. They think that God God is, is a man. Um, he, he has a, a physical body. He's like, I don't know, 13 feet tall or something like that, 10 feet tall. He's really tall. And he really is an old man in the sky. Um, but um, biblically speaking, like, let's talk about the temple real quick. Uh, not only is the second commandment, you, you shall make no image representing me and you, to bow down and worship. There's that, but that that's a little more limited than some people think. Um, so artistic representations of, of things is not all bad. Exodus 24 is talking, 20 verse 4 is talking about... Um, um, worship related images, right? So making an, an image of an angel and worshiping it bad, but in the same temple, there's two images of angels made out of gold on the, on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies there with their wings outstretched and a space between them to represent the presence of God. So this is interesting, but, but the thing is the, the Jews never worshiped those angels. Those angels were never the objects of worship of any kind. So that's really important. So it's not that we can't do artwork or even artwork that represents heavenly things because we see that in the temple. Read the description of the temple in detail. There's lots of stuff in there. But when it came to God, even in the temple, there is no image. There's no likeness that's made there. And one of the reasons for this is, it seems to me, because God doesn't want us to be confused about his identity. He's not part of creation and he's not like creation. He's so transcendently bigger, better, and more than all of this finite stuff that using something to represent him like an old man is a false representation of God. God is better than that. God is more than that. And so for that reason, it there's, there's, um, there's my pushback here is that angels can at least be represented because they're at least part of creation. God is not, and you cannot take Santa Claus and <laughs> and act like that represents God. So I think it's it's a bad idea to do that. It's one thing to describe God coming in some sort of theophany, but it's something else to to just give God as though this is his form, right? When God comes and interacts with us in in a in a form, that doesn't mean that that just is his form. Okay? Then you have um uh the the um is it ascended to pick God in any way? Um it's at least, well, it may well be. Um, <laughs> now, now let me let me back off of this a little bit and suggest that what if what if in the cartoon they just depict God as light? Is okay. Well, I, would I say that's a sin? I mean, they depicted God, but he, he's just light. There's just a light source, um, and you know that's happening in Scripture. Sometimes God is sort of described. Isaiah describes the seeing God in, in Isaiah, but but you, you what's interesting is he doesn't describe God much. He's like describes the train of his robe. <laughs> Notice this, he's staying away from the actual description of God. So there's a certain like holiness and reverence. I don't want to lower God's magnificence by representing him as something so much smaller than who he truly is. Now, the exception to this would seem to be Jesus, right? Jesus comes and he's the image of God, right? He, he's God with us and he actually comes in human form. But that human form is meant to be seen as a contrast to God's nature, right? Not as encapsulating all of the, all that God is. Instead, we look at Jesus in human form and we see God's humility. We see the humility of the son. He comes and he's represented in, in, as a human, a weak, lowly human. And we should see this as a stark contrast to his divine, um, unlimited glory and power. So I don't want to um, 
use humans to represent God in that way, um, unless I'm keeping that contrast present in the in the context of the art or whatever it is you're doing. So yeah, you got to be wise about that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there's my thoughts on that, Cindy. I hope that that helps. Um, a lot of times people who are producing these cartoons for kids and stuff like that, I don't want to rip on them too much. Sometimes they get the short end of the stick because people, it's so easy to criticize the work of others who are working on often very, very small budgets trying to kick out this content that it might help other people. And they have various concerns and not perhaps thoroughly vetting the theological implications of everything they do. And I just want to be gracious to them. But also, you know, We'd like if they did better. <laughs> All right, number 13. Cool Bob says, Bible says that those who diligently seek God will find him. What about the Muslims, Hindus, and all the people who are diligently seeking God but never find Jesus and stay in their religion? Well, let me just point first that there are many Muslims, many Hindus, and many people who are diligently seeking God, and they leave Islam, and they leave Hinduism, and they leave Mormonism, and they leave paganism, and they leave atheism. And they, there are, I mean, if people didn't, if, if, if people didn't find God seeking him, I don't, it, it'd be hard to explain the existence of Christianity. Like if Christianity's true, right, then you are seeing it happen all over the place. As, you know, my ancestors would, would have been like Druids or something like that in Ireland, you know, and here's me worshiping the God of Israel. So definitely there's a lot going on there. Um, the power behind this question, Cool Bob, is the idea that... There are these hypothetical individuals that are seeking God so hard and so pure-heartedly, but they're not finding him. And <clears throat> the power of this depends on how much you believe that depiction of people. I don't really know that I believe that depiction of people. That there's people out there that are just seeking God with all their heart and not finding him. Like, I, I have a really hard time swallowing that that's like a real scenario. I really do. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people who are going to be, there's going to be Muslims, Hindus, Christians, every atheist who all will tell you as loud as possible that they are seeking with all their heart to know the truth about God. But this may have more to do with our own self delusions about our own sincerity and goodness, right? Um, proverb says, uh, let me, let me take you to a proverb. Um, uh, Proverbs 20 verse 6. That's the verse I want to find for you here. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? If I went around and I grabbed 10 random Muslims, 10 random Hindus, 10 random Christians, at least people who say that they're each of these things, 10 random atheists, 10 random... I'm not religious, I'm spiritual people. If I just grabbed 10 random people from each of these groups and I just went through each of them and said, are you sincerely seeking God? Um, are you sincere in your, your desire to know the truth about God? I, I imagine that almost all of them would say yes. But I just don't believe that to be the case. And one of the reasons I don't believe that, Mike, you're such a cynic, is because I know my own heart. And I know that there are times when I think I'm seeking God and I look back and realize that I was really seeking my own desires and wanting God's approval for them. And I didn't at the time recognize that that was what, what I was doing because we inevitably think we're the good guy in our story. Right? We, we have, um, you guys, I'm going to share something with you that I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say is my opinion. 
and it could be it could be incorrect, but it's something I've noticed with the the massive exposure we have to um, movies and TV shows nowadays that obviously other generations never had. And I'm going to call this the pro the problem of um, the protagonist perspective. <laughs> let, me just, let me just make up a name for something so it sounds more official. The problem of the protagonist perspective, and this may relate to Cool Bob's question. Um, when you're watching shows, you you find yourself magnetically drawn towards rooting for whoever is, you know, whoever the perspective of the show is being represented by. So if the show represents the perspective of a criminal, you find yourself rooting, just magnetically drawn to root for the criminal. And those who come against the criminal are seen as being obstacles or, or antagonists. And those who are for or helpful to the criminal are seen as being protagonists and we tend to judge others in the in the world of the show or the movie by how good they are to that protagonist to that lead character of the show this is an interesting phenomenon i find it's true even in me i watch a show and i'm like i'm like i'm like rooting why am i rooting for this guy like this this this, this is a bad guy and he's about to get caught or his plans are about to fail and i'm like part of me doesn't want them to fail what is going on? That is so weird. If this was real life, I'd be like, lock them up, you know? And there's there's something weird going on there that's, that people have acknowledged who look at um, at storytelling. It's the problem of, of the protagonist. It's I, when I see life or see the world through the lens of this character, I, am, I automatically think this character is the good guy. Now I want you to translate this into your life. You've been living your entire life for 23 years, for 57 years, for 19 years, for 13 years, however long you've been living. You've been living through the lens of one person and you've been seeing the world through the lens of how people treat you. And you tend to feel like you're the good guy. Like when someone comes against you, that makes them bad. In fact, you'll even think people are good or bad, not based on their actual character, but based on how they treat you. Is that person good? Well, they're good to me. Yeah, they're good. I like them, they're good. Is that person bad? Well, they were maybe they're like objectively good in some other sense, but they they were rude to me, so I hate them. Right? There's this problem of the protagonist. So when you go to the person who's lived their entire life seeing the world through their own eyes and you ask them, "Are you sincere in your seeking of God?" and they're like, "Are you kidding? I'm the hero of this show. Of course I'm sincere. Are you kidding? I'm the protagonist. Of course I'm genuine." And um this this is why Proverbs tells us that most men will proclaim their own goodness, and yet Romans is going to tell us that that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and these this creates a problem for those preaching the gospel, because they'll go to someone and be like, "Man, you need to seek the Lord," and they'll just be like, "Of course I seek the Lord. I'm the good guy in this show. Don't you know that?" All right, number fourteen. M. Rod says, "If you struggle with sin, and there's a true condition, true contrition. Excuse me." There's true contrition, but you still keep repeating the same sin and asking for forgiveness. Will God still forgive you? Uh, Imrod, this is a super general question, and you're probably talking either about yourself or, or someone else's super serious situation. And generally speaking, I, I, I can only offer broad strokes here because I'm not trying to make a... Here's the danger of making generalities is that they can be applied clumsily to different situations. Okay, so um, in general... 
if there's a person who as, is a Christian and they still battle and struggle with sin on a regular basis, but there is a genuineness in their in their fight against the sin and a, and a contrition that's there that's, you would say, a true contrition, okay? Like, I, I, I keep struggling with this. The temptation doesn't go. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I succeed. I am not going to want to kick them while they're down, okay? Personally, I'm going to want to encourage them in the Lord and in his grace and in his kindness and in, and then have a second glance at their life and say, hey, what is it that you haven't been trying to fix this problem that would seem obvious to everyone else, you know? Um, so I, I, want to, I want to say that, 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 that I'm, I'm, my, my tendency is to want to encourage and strengthen them. Um, on the other hand, there are those where their their continual sinful lifestyle may be evidence that they're just simply not genuine in their faith in Christ. Now, here's where it becomes really challenging for me, Imrod, and this is this is where I I I fall short, and, but maybe I'm supposed to in this area. Um, it seems to me that when Scripture confronts these scenarios, particularly in the New Testament, that the answer is not given; it's just a question that's asked. So. When, when Paul writes to people, he'll, he'll say sometimes things like, man, I wish I could have confidence about you, but right now I'm in doubt. He's in doubt? What does that mean? He's in doubt? Is he saying they're not saved because of the way they're living? No, he's not. He didn't say that, did he? He said he's in doubt. He means he has uncertainty. He means that when you're, and, and here's my application of this, is when your life is so inconsistent with your Christian commitments, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but it does mean there's doubt about it. And so while my tendency is to want to encourage and strengthen those people and lift them up, lift up the weak, I am also aware that there are some who are going to be like, this is just revealing you're not really saved. So I want to take perhaps the same posture, at least that I think I see in scripture, which is to say, um, you know, realize that there's a, there's a question of doubt. There's a confusion. There's, there's, there's a problem here we need to address. Um, maybe someone's overblowing. They just think the fact that they're tempted means that they're backslidden or something like that. And that's silly. And we can address that. But someone just keeps committing sin. I want to have a varied response. I want to be like, look, is there humility? Right? Because pride to, to, to the proud goes the warnings and the law. To the humble goes the grace and the kindness. Okay, is there humility or is there pride about this very issue of sin? If I sense pride, I'm going to lean more towards a harsher response. If I sense humility, I'm going to lean more towards a gracious and kind response. And ultimately, um, a super general answer to your question may not suit all those situations. I hope that helps you guys. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm making things harder for you. Um, I'm just trying to be as real as possible. Number 15, Laura Clark says, I recently converted to Christianity. Our church does baptisms, which, which is great, by the way, Laura. Um, thank God for that. Our church does baptisms once a year, but my husband has COVID and can't attend. I want him to be there, but I also want to get baptized ASAP. What should I do? Can you like stream it on a phone so he can watch? <laughs> Is that possible? Have someone come up on stage and just bring the phone right there and just be like they're the stand-in so your husband can be part of it? I mean, that seems like it would be a good solution to me. Um, or you could ask somebody to come over to the house to do it. Or you could give your husband a, a, a big giant bubble that he comes to church in. Okay, obviously that's not a solution. Uh, but Laura, I mean, I'm just I'm just brainstorming with you here, Laura. I'm, I'm excited that you're a Christian. I definitely think you should get baptized. Not as like a, uh, I'm scared, I better get baptized or else. No, 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 no. But as like a, go for it, you know, plug in and be part of it. Um, I think that's the thing to do as soon as possible. I mean, can you video it? Can you stream it for your husband? And you come home and you guys can watch it together and uh, celebrate. Maybe, maybe that would be a good option. I, I don't know. 
But we're excited for you, Laura. That's awesome. Thank God. Number 16, Richards98 says, Can you explain the gap between the early churches in the New Testament and the first Protestants like Martin Luther? It depends on what you mean by the gap. So let me just talk. I'll speak generally about it. Um, so the gap. I, I suppose there's maybe uh, a lot of people feel this way. And Richard, it may not be you. Forgive me. Okay, I'm not. I'm not trying to mind read you at all. But in my head, I'm thinking, how do people often wrestle with these issues? They often think that we have um, like these blocks, like like church history is just in these sort of clean cut blocks. So you've got the book of Acts and then that, you know, the end of Acts, there's a block. And then you have the rise over, you know, maybe over the next 300 years, maybe and, and more, <laughs> the rise of say Roman Catholicism over here and Orthodox uh, over here. And then you have Martin Luther who shows up in 1500s, that's another block, boom. 1500s, Martin Luther comes, and then the Reformation and Protestants and all that. And they're like, we had to get back to the book. We had to get back to Acts. And the implication is that like in between, you know, maybe th maybe 300s until 1500s, there's just like, it's just all compromised and it's all wacky and messed up. But the reality is that the history of it, as I've been reading some of these history things on it, it's super fluid and super complicated. It's just, it just isn't simplistic at all. Um, you, it's hard to even define a date when you could say Roman Catholicism officially, this is when it begins, because it's just so flowing and slow and incremental in many places and ways. So that being said, um, um, the the gap can also be perhaps exaggerated because we, we would think, um, okay, Mike, you have a Protestant church, you know, your church is Protestant, you guys have like a worship time and then you have like a bible study and then you have like um maybe you have like a new believers class right now right and like and we start to think that some of these things that are like just our structure that 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 is what we're saying was happening in the book of acts and in the earliest churches that's not what we're saying um the protestant reformation is is more about here's how i view it in the book of acts you have the church in its infancy and and while it still goes through chaos sometimes and there still is going to be like heresies that are cropping up that a lot of the new testament's written to refute those things and deal with that stuff so it's not like it's just pure but but what you have is the least amount of extra biblical tradition in the book of acts and in the early in the first century the least amount of extra biblical traditions now as time goes by any organizational group tends to take on more and more of man's traditions some of those are good, some of those are bad, and some of those are innocuous. The Protestant Reformation came into started in a time where there was an awful lot of those traditions that had accrued over time. Some of them good, some of them bad, and some of them innocuous. And what they did was they said, hey, what would happen if we tried to divest ourselves of as much of these extra biblical traditions as possible and get to as close to a biblical stance as possible? They weren't the only people to ever do it, but they were very successful at starting a giant movement while doing it. And so when you look at it like that, you go, okay, so there's in our church history, there's a number of people who reject this or reject that. I mean, there was a, there were councils in the Catholic church uh, to reject the massive authority that the Pope was gaining at the time. And then later they said, well, that council didn't count. <laughs> so, so, so like this stuff had been going on for a long time. It's not as blocky as we sometimes think. I don't know if that helps. Um, yeah. So now my response as a 
as a guy who would consider himself Protestant, would, would be, I'm not trying to get us back to Martin Luther, but I agree with Martin Luther that we should get back to the text of Scripture. And so by pointing our arrow back to the Bible and back to the first century and back to the New Testament documents, we have the best chance of shedding ourselves of unbiblical things that might be harmful. And I think that that's a smart thing to do. Number 17, Trevor Doran says, "What? why does the Lord call Gideon a mighty man of valor when he had many wives? Was this always a sin? I'm confused about this, honestly. Um, you know what? Off the top of my head, I'm not remembering if Gideon had many wives at that time. Um, so Judges 6, 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah. Ophrah, not Oprah. <laughs> Um, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So at this point in Gideon's life, I don't know if he's married at that point in time. I, I, I guess, I mean, he's living in his father's house. What he does reflects on his father. He destroys his father's idols. He, I don't know if he was married at that time. Uh, later on, he definitely got married. And here's the arc that a lot of the judges follow. And this may help you as you study the book of Judges, um, Trevor. So in the book of Judges, a lot of the judges follow the same arc. Um, it's like, an, they're like a nobody. God uses them mightily. And then they fail. Like they tend to end on a bad note. And the whole book of Judges ends on a bad note. That that actually follows the arc of Judges. Well, actually, it's, it's lots of arcs. It's like, uh, they're, they're really bad, they're doing lousy, then they get better, then they get worse, and they get better, then they get worse, and God delivers them, and they get worse and worse and worse. But if you zoom out, the book of Judges looks more like this. <laughs> like, here's the beginning, God brought them in, oh, but they sinned, so they fell into stuff. And they got better, and they got worse, and they got better, and, they, and you notice it's actually, they're, they're getting worser, <laughs> and, and worsiest at the end, until it's just a bunch of Worcestershire sauce. Um, cheesy jokes all day long. So the um, the point here is don't let it surprise you that these judges fail and that as you progress through the book of Judges, they fail more and more frequently and there's less good and more bad to say about them because that's kind of a theme of the book of Judges. Judges is is a, is a is like a bad news report. It's like spotlighting. Look at look at this. It shows God's faithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness. It's a good case for the sin of mankind. Now, back to the uh, Mighty Man of Valor stuff. Oh, oh. so as far as this, before I get to that, as far as Gideon's arc goes, Gideon has a lot of these, you know, he's, he's, he's actually kind of weak and timid, right? He has a lot of these like really wonderful high moments. And then the latter part of his life is all bad news. All of it's bad. And I would include lots of women that he gets with the fame he now has as being a deliverer for Israel. And he names one of them, what, uh, uh, son of the king. Abimelech, son of the king. He's not even a king, right? But he, his son's named Abimelech. That it's just, it just gets weird. Okay. When God came and says, Lord, the Lord is with you, or excuse me, the angel of the Lord comes, who I do think is a, a theophany, but he says, the, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. The question we have is, what is meant by mighty man of valor? Um, I don't think it means you, all that you do is righteous. Okay. Nobody would think this, but this could be the impression you've got, Trevor, when you're like, how could it be said of him if he has multiple wives? Well, he may not have had multiple wives, but let's pretend he did already. You mighty man of valor. Well, well this would not refer to somebody who is righteous. 
A mighty man of valor in this sense is more of like a military term. Like you're a powerful fighter is the idea. What's interesting is though, is there's an irony here because there's nothing about Gideon while he threshes wheat in the wine press that says he's a mighty man of valor. First off, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. That is, he's he's um, he's separating wheat from chaff, but he's doing it in a wine press with walls because he's hiding from the Midianites because they would come and steal the wheat. So he's he's trying to get food for his family in hiding. Um, there's a certain braveness that's there, but there's also a certain cowardice that's there, right? He's fearful of the Midianites. His response to God to show the irony here, Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. He's not really a man of faith right now, is he? Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And it's, here's the irony. What might? Gideon has no might. He has no power. He's he's just like kind of like a, a, a woe is me and I'm hiding. And, and that's the point of Gideon's story. Gideon then gets an army and God says, oh, your army's too big. I want you to beat me to beat the enemy with fewer people in your army. And so God's like using Gideon to show his might amongst the weakest of God's people. So I think it's an ironic statement. Oh, mighty man of valor is about what God's going to do with Gideon. Although it's not because of Gideon, it's all because of God's power. So it's not a statement about Gideon so much as about God and his ability to work through anybody to accomplish deliverance. Um, that's how I would take it. Number 18, Daniel Lazen says, if God knits us in our mother's womb, where did we get our sin nature? Um, well, I, um, the, 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 maybe the assumption, cause sometimes questions have kind of these hidden assumptions. So Daniel, it might be that you're thinking if God creates us, he can't create us. Like if he's, if he's active in my, in my, um, creation inside the womb, then he, I can't have sin. I can't have something wrong with me because God can't produce something bad, right? Um, I, I don't know that I would put that burden or that limitation on God that he can't produce someone who has a sin nature, right? That he can't actively be involved as though God has to be hands off. But I also would suggest that the, the Psalm that says that God knit us together in our mother's womb isn't saying that each a process of biological growth of a child is miraculous and not just like not all, not a natural process in nature. I don't think it's meant to be a comment on that. I think what's happening here is God's being given credit for the incredible design that there is in the human body. I think that's it. I think that's what we're supposed to get from that passage. Let me see if I can take us there and we'll look at it. If I can find it. Psalm 139, 13. Okay, um, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So um, the idea here is just giving God credit for the design that is in me and credit for all of creation. Obviously, if God sets up the universe the way it is, and even if there are some natural forces involved, God designed those and made those. So he's like, God, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together. He sees that there's a personal involvement of God in, in even the natural biological things that are happening. 
Does that mean I can't have sin nature? Uh, no, I don't know why. I, I, I just don't understand why. So let me read your question again, Daniel. If God knits us in our mother's wombs, where do we get our sin nature? I don't know why that's a problem. Even if God miraculously designed you, like even if he poofed you to existence in the mother's womb without pre-existing DNA, you could still have a sin nature. I don't know why God couldn't do that. You're like, well, it would make God bad for making me bad. Well, hold on. I mean, I don't think sin nature means you're guilty. I think it means you have proclivities and God is going to fix those in the end, of course, if you turn to Christ. So, yeah, so I guess I'm not seeing the force of the question, Daniel. I, I hope my answers helped. I feel like you, you could get a better answer from somebody. Perhaps not me. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Elijah Hernandez says, hey, Mike, I believe in the Trinity, but there is someone who has used 1 Corinthians 15.28 against the doctrine. Can you please explain this for me? Well, I can read the verse and we can talk about it. 1 Corinthians 15.28. All right. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Um, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 27 here. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he's, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself, the son, will also be subjected to him, that would be the father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, two things I'll mention here. Um, the idea, it seems to be, the presumption seems to be that if the son is subjected to the father, if there's a role difference where one is yielding and subjecting himself to the other, then they cannot then the doctrine of the Trinity cannot be true. Now, here's what I want to say. A lot of the arguments against the doctrine of the Trinity, they're not against the doctrine of the Trinity. The, like, the doctrine of the Trinity holds that there is, um, okay, there's what we, in fancy terms, we call the ontological Trinity and the economical Trinity. So the ontological is just like, this is the nature of God. Three persons, one being. Okay, that's the short, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. That's that's the Trinity in a nutshell. Ontologically, the nature of the Trinity. But then there's the economic Trinity. This is the relationship, which if there's three persons, there can be relationship there. And then there can be love. God has love within his own being, which is amazing um, because there's multiple persons. Now, the relationship these persons have can involve one yielding to the other, one person of the Trinity yielding to the other. And this is what we see here. The son yields to the father, right? He's subjecting right, himself to the father. It, like giving, uh, you know, saying, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be under your lead, so to speak. So I don't really have a problem with that. That's not a, this will be an explanation of the economic Trinity, not a challenge to the ontological Trinity. The second thing I like to say is this, um, the solution, this is so that God can be all in all. Now, this is interesting. The, the, the formula is everything is made subject to the son and then the son is, is subjected to the father. And that is how God can be all in all. And I think that that last phrase, while it's challenging, admittedly, it makes more sense if the son and the father are God. Right, that, that the son is God. I should say the son is God and the father is God. I don't want to say our God. I might be confusing terminology. Anyhow, um, I don't see 
any challenge to the Trinity in, in noticing role differences. Role differences imply different persons, um, which is part of the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, we're going to go to the last question today. This is, this is from uh, Anonymous and says, how can young people be, a good, be good ambassadors for Christ when we also sin? How do we make sure we do not conform to this world? Um, you answered your question. <laughs> um, uh, don't conform to the world and don't sin. So like, I mean, in a sense, this is like really simplistic, but I also recognize this, that sometimes the simplest questions are the ones that are dr driving us the most and we most desperately need someone to give us some help with. And so um, my encouragement would be this. Uh, as a young person, here's a few things for you. It really helps when you can when you can sort of stand outside of your generation and look at them from a biblical perspective. And what I mean by this is you can see the trends and the mentalities that everyone has and nobody notices that everyone has. That I think is pretty important, actually. So when you look and you go, hey, you know, young people are generally arrogant, self-righteous, quick to judge, quick to speak, slow to slow to think. <laughs> I mean, this is not, it's not true of every young person, but these are tendencies in the generation. Um, the desire for attention on self, for appreciation of self, for self-exaltation and for, for that, that that's, imp that's really present. Another thing young people have that I would just want you to step back and notice it's there, okay? Because then you're going to see, hey, this is going to affect me too. I want to process that as a Christian. Another thing young people have, I find, is they're terribly afraid of other young people. Um, this is going to be after many, many years doing youth ministry, I realized that teens and preteens are more afraid of people their own age and more worried about what people their own age think than they are worried about just about anybody else and what they think. You know, when you're in class, you're not worried that your teacher doesn't like you. You're worried that the other students don't like you. You're not worried that what you do will be looked at, frowned upon by, by adults around you. While you don't like that, what's even worse is that the people your own age will think you're ridiculous or foolish or annoying or whatever. If you can stand outside your generation and see that these are perennial problems amongst youth, pretty much every every generation, um, then you can start to try to have a biblical mindset on those things. And so one of the things I would encourage you to do is to say, my identity, I don't get my satisfaction for who I am. I don't get my approval and I don't get my, my sense of self-worth from the people around me, particularly from the teens around me. Why on earth am I looking at them for affirmation? I'm going to get my affirmation from God. I am part of the kingdom of Christ. I am a child of God in Christ. And this is going to be where I find my satisfaction. Because then you will have the power to overcome the peer pressure to conform and to yield or to just become silent on important issues that are going on in the lives of people around you. When you have that sense of, of confidence that there is in Christ, like a, a, a humble confidence, I think that's pretty powerful. And it will enable you to deal with some of the stuff you see going on around you. Uh, consider reading the book of Daniel and how Daniel <clears throat> and his, you know, compadres, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were dragged from their Jewish context into this Babylonian context. And there they were, they were systematically um, educated to be more like the Babylonians, but they refused it. And this is what's really interesting is it, they're a, a case study for someone who has like a godly a godly culture at least what should have been a godly culture that they come from and they're brought into an ungodly culture and they're surrounded by peers who are generally ungodly and think they're weird 
because they're trying to live godly. But they held their ground and they decided they would not defile themselves with the king's delicacies and things like that. And because of that, God was able to use them. So I, I think that being able to not hate your culture around you, not hate the other students around you, but to be able to look at them and say, hey, I don't get my sense of self-worth from these guys. I don't need them to approve of me. I am not doing what I'm doing for them primarily. I'm doing it for the Lord primarily. And I'd like to have an impact in their lives as well. Um, I think that that's good. If you can remove normal teenage insecurities from the equation, this is not meant to look normal, totally normal. Most humans have a relatively high amount of insecurities about things. I've realized this even about myself. I, I just I just go, that's insecurity. I'm just not going to let that influence my thinking here. I'm just going to push it aside and do, it, do the right thing regardless. Um, <clears throat> so normal teenage insecurities look to other teens to make them feel better about themselves. This causes them to conform to this world in a lot of weird ways. Godly Christian teens will look to the word of God, look to godly Christian leaders, these people to help them to sense their direction in life, their purpose in life, and find their satisfaction in Christ. And then they can be separate from the world and not so influenced to uh, jump off the bridge, so to speak. All right. Well, <clears throat> that's my thoughts. I hope that some of those things are helpful for you. And um, man, read scripture. Just read, read scripture. Listen to scripture soak in the word of God. Thank you guys for joining me. This has been episode 46 of the um, 20 questions that we do every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That is whatever time it is in California. And Monday, this Monday, I have coming up for you guys the final teaching in the Mark series over two years in the gospel of Mark, at least because of delays from COVID stuff. And we are now finishing it. This is going to be the last study in the series. I am looking forward to it. It's nice to be able to say, wow, that was done and look back at the, you know, the work, the bunch of work that was there. And it's just there for hopefully to bless people. Exciting for me. And I hope it's a blessing to you. I intend to continue just creating massive amounts of heavily researched content that it might just be a blessing and be accessible for free for everyone. And hopefully, hopefully it, um, hopefully it nurtures you, draws you closer to Christ not just in your knowledge, but in your, in your life. Thank you all so much. Thank you to the mods for being there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just looking for the buttons over here to stop everything. There's no more cats. She left. She got her cuddles in. She's gone. Um, I think that's it. I think that's it.